You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas behind your favorite online brands. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Emily Schultz, <laughs> welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so you're the founder of Pop-Up Grocer. You describe it on your website as a traveling pop-up grocery store, showcasing hundreds of products from the most innovative and exciting natural food brands today. Uh, this made me think of, do you know who Marshall McLuhan is? He's like a f- philosopher. He, he coined the phrase, uh, the medium is the message. Mm. Um, but he also coined a phrase called um, the global village, which was back in the 1960s, way ahead of its time. Now we have the internet and the global village is real, which is, you know, anyone can start a brand and start selling to a worldwide audience, set up your e-commerce store. And he he described this idea not just for physical goods, but also for ideas. And we have that with social media. Like anyone can just go online and say something and then someone on the other side of the world can get that idea. And I was wondering, what is the global grocery store? As we move more of everything to this like global village, when you think about grocery and food in that context, what do you think about? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really uh, fair point about our our times, it's easier than ever to start a brand, which is a wonderful thing. And it makes it that much more difficult. Every category, not just in grocery, but particularly in grocery, is oversaturated. You know, we're living in an age of too much stuff. So the way I see Pop-Up Grocer is like an edit. It's a way to call through the clutter and help people narrow their selection to just the items that they should really be paying attention to, or at least expose those new and interesting ones that in a traditional retail setting, you would just completely overlook just by nature of the environment and there being so many items grabbing for your attention. So yeah, so that's definitely uh, one of the reasons why we created this traveling showcase was, I think, by necessity. That's a great point. When um, we did an episode recently with Elizabeth Thegren, who is a writer at Fast Company, and um, we were reviewing some of our, you know, predictions that we that we had made for the past few years and where we thought those would go in the future. And one of the predictions that I had made four or five years ago was around uh, technology being an enabler to break down barriers. And I think that has turned out to be true, but it has created another barrier, which is there's just more noise than ever before. It's so much easier to start, but it creates more noise. And one of the other ideas that we had thrown out there as a counterbalancing was the idea of discovery and curation and how do you counterbalance that increase in the amount of noise and and find the things that are really working for people or maybe matchmaking better? How do you find the right thing for the right person? And so when you think about that with Pop-Up Grocer, what comes to mind? Is it more of finding the right match for the right person or is it more elevating the ones that are the best? It's both. I mean, we have a very specific consumer, at least today, who comes through our doors. They're highly educated. They're very conscious about the food decisions that they're making for themselves, for their families. You know, they have a pretty high food IQ. They are less price conscious. They're more willing and understanding of wanting to 
pay for products that are going to benefit their health and their well-being. We are presenting ourselves in urban environments currently. So, you know, these are major uh, metropolitan areas of the country. So our products are certainly a, a match for that person. But yeah, but I mean, generally we are elevating these brands that we are sharing and presenting them overall with the products that we think that they should be buying. That's in our opinion, in my opinion, in my very uh, subjective opinion. Yeah. So your first location was in New York or is it still going on at Neighborhood Goods? Is that correct? Or where was the first one? So we've had two and a half stores. Mm -hmm. uh, Two and a half stores. (laughs) Yeah, in in New York. Um, So we've had two in our our isolated uh, storefronts, um, one in April and one in September of this past year. And then the 0.5 is our activation (laughs) in Neighborhood Goods. Um, So we are, it's just 20 brands where our standalone store represent uh, between 150 and 175. So it's much smaller. But yeah, we are inside Neighborhood Goods, which for anyone who's unfamiliar with Neighborhood Goods uh, is similar to us, like a a modern retail concept that uh, showcases a a number of interesting brands inside their space and rotates them out. Yeah, Matt Alexander, the founder, has been on the podcast twice, actually. First for his his first company before Neighborhood Goods. So you can see the evolution of his thought process. It was pretty interesting. And now you're opening a new one here in Los Angeles um, in like a week or something from when when we're recording. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Just a week from Friday. Wow. Are you how are you feeling about that? Are you is it smooth sailing from here or is it still so many little details to prep? Yeah. I mean, I'm a pretty chill person. So uh, generally, I'll tell you that things are kind of smooth sailing. Okay. But it is probably the crazy, Mm. the craziest of the of the crazy times in this business. Uh, Our build out is just about uh, between five and seven days, really about four or five. And the remainder is, you know, merchandising and processing inventory. Um, So it's very fast. Mm. uh, And that all yeah, that all will happen here in in just a couple of days. And when you say pop-up, how long uh, do you usually go for? Yeah, I mean, we're really in the true spirit of a pop-up. Our our first store was 10 days long, Mm -hmm. which was nuts. And actually, my original idea was to have this be for three days at a time, which is insane. Um, (laughs) But we do about 30 days at a Mm. time currently in any given city. And why is pop-up the right model for this, in your opinion? Is it the right model? I don't know. I'm asking. Uh, it's right. one today, model. Today, that's what we're hypothesizing. Yeah. yeah. I really believe in a strong sense of urgency being mm. necessary for anyone to want to do anything of our generation. And that's proven to be true so far in that about a third of our traffic happens on the first and last weekend. Yeah. I, I think if we were around much longer, it would be this thing that you want to do and you'll do at some point and you just keep putting it on the back burner and then you never really get there. I mean, that's my own personal experience. So, but it must create so much more other kinds of work that you wouldn't have to do. Like you're, you have to move all this stuff. You have to find a location. You got to negotiate the deals with the people. Uh, that must add a lot of work. Yeah. It's yeah. not the easier way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, we're building what otherwise feels like a permanent store, uh, in a five day, seven day period, and then breaking it all down, uh, 30 days later. What's your pitch to the brands or how, how does that conversation go? What are they looking for out of this? Yeah. So, so I'm a marketer. I've been in brand marketing for the entirety of my career. So 
that's how I approached this. I mean, I definitely had a desire as a consumer for a different grocery shopping experience. That was like the secondary consideration. Um, the idea really came from my understanding that, as you were saying, there are just so there's so much opportunity now for brands to exist, and it's a much lower barrier to entry for them. Uh, but then once they create these amazing products, they develop beautiful packaging, and it's like, all right, let's get this out in the world. That experience is not fun. Um, to be a D2C brand, the cost of acquiring a customer digitally is just increasingly very expensive. Uh, and then at retail, you know, you're one of 50 other brands, one skew among hundreds. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to be noticed just by someone passing by the shelf. Uh, so I wanted to create an environment in which these brands could have the exposure and visibility that they deserve because I really believed in the products that I was working with, the ones that I was exposed to as a result of my work. So, so that's the pitch really to these brands is that it is a pay to play model. You know, they're advertising. So they partner with us, um, and pay us a showcase fee uh, to participate. And in return, we actually generate the traffic and the quality traffic uh, of people that they want to learn of their existence. And that includes largely consumers, but also media, influencers, buyers, investors. In the meantime, they also get to sell stuff and learn from what flavors are selling better than others or yeah, just generally in comparison to what other products their consumer is interested in, we know what else is in their basket. Um, so there's a lot of data that results from the shop experience as well. When um, I was browsing the different companies that you're featuring, uh, a couple have been on the podcast like Brightland, the olive oil, Magic Spoon with the cereal. First of all, is there like a tasting kind of component to this? Like can people try and sample the, the different products? Yes. Is that I, a big piece of, or like from a... It's not a huge okay. piece. Um, I struggle with sampling a little bit and maybe that's too much about me personally and, <laughs> and whether or not I enjoy sampling. Yeah. Um, I always feel like sampling is something that's being pushed on me mm. and the environment that we're trying to create is really about trust and, and discovery overall. So we, we want to leave people alone as much as they want to be left alone. Yeah. We want to give them the option. We're very educated. If you want to ask us questions about anything on shelf, like we can go into great detail about it, but also we give you a magazine that has that information inside. So you can read about it independently if you'd mm. like. Um, and I feel the same way about samples. Like in a grocery store setting, it kind of cheapens the experience for me. And depending on the person sampling, how aggressive they are, sure. it can lead me to feel one way or another. So we do it, but we do it in a in a discreet uh, way that doesn't that doesn't feel like it's being forced upon you. I think you through your experiences, uh, a brand marketer. I think the the storytelling aspect of it is really important. How do you train? your staff and, and the team on knowing all of the information about all the products and do the brands care exactly what wording you use? How do you get that dialed in? Yeah. Some care more than others. Some are more complicated than others. Mm. For example, in the LA store, we have honeycomb. It's individual servings of honeycomb. You know, the concept, the benefits of why one would eat honeycomb versus honey or, you know, what's propolis. These are all things that are much more demanding of explaining than yogurt. 
Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So so we definitely give emphasis to those that are just requiring that. Uh, but overall, you know, yeah, the the training is pretty intensive uh, to make sure that our staff knows each of the hundred and fifty plus brands, but also the four hundred plus. Pr- what products. is what does that mean? Intensive. It's a lot of reading. It's mm. a lot of us then summarizing. You know, we have to really drill down to the core the two or three sentences that they're arguably going to be able to remember and regurgitate Mm. uh, because otherwise in such a, again, in such a short period of time, it's far too overwhelming. Um, You know, we're not going to be a store that's around for uh, four months, year, years where they have the time to get familiar with the details. They have to do it in a very limited period of time. Do you find that brands are usually um, self-aware or good at, at giving you the one to two sentence version or, Mm -mm. or do you really have to edit (laughs) (laughs) what they're saying and turn it into something that you can explain? Yeah, you definitely have to edit it, which is where my experience comes into play uh, because every brand thinks every aspect Mm. is of, is of the most importance. And uh, yeah, it requires us to opine and um, break that down a little bit. What are the tips that you have from your experience doing all of this about distilling what it is that you're selling? I think it comes down to prioritizing. Hmm. You can certainly tell the story of every facet of your brand, uh, but it's a matter of time and place and cultural relevance from a dietary standpoint specific to food like what aspects of your product do people care about right now and how can we uh, infiltrate that conversation? I think it's not a matter of like cut and say goodbye, Mm. but just rather structuring that and organizing it in a way that makes sense from a time perspective. One thing that I'm curious about from a storytelling standpoint, um, an analogy I'll I'll give is um, we had Zahir Dosa from Function of Beauty. I don't know if you're familiar with their company. They make shampoos that are completely oh, customized. Mm-hmm. And so you can go on their website and customize this whole shampoo, like exactly with your style of hair and all your preferences. And right. you can even choose the color. But then when you receive it, the bottle only just says function of beauty on it. And it's very minimalistic. The packaging is super simple. And so you couldn't do that at retail, right? Because there's so many layers of first the story of why they're doing it in a customized fashion. Like they have a whole spiel about that, that you can discover on their website. And then the product ultimately when you receive it is not trying to explain anything because you've already gone through that educational process through the website. And that's something that I think a lot of direct to consumer brands can benefit from because the packaging can now become something that's not about explaining anything. It's Mm -hmm. not about nutritional facts. It's not about storytelling. It's just about a container that is you know, maybe more permanent and more attractive or something that you want to put on a shelf, for example. A lot of companies are doing that in different verticals. I wonder, is that possible in the food world? I think Brightland is a good example of that. But is it translating as much, especially for brands that have to do multi-channel and have to coexist both online and offline? Or or have you seen any patterns there? It's hard. I mean, definitely the D to C brands that launch in in our store at retail for the first time have a lot of learning Mm. around the the failures really of their packaging in that setting and then the decision becomes how do they make those adjustments because 
it's hard to have one thing satisfy both environments. So if you adjust your packaging for retail, where it can do a lot of that heavy lifting for you and explaining who you are and the aspects of your product, then it might not be as beautiful or straightforward or simple or streamlined for the D to C setting. So yeah, it is a challenge to find the balance there or the the solution that it fits both. I wonder if being at Pop-Up Grocer though allows me as a brand to, to kind of sidestep that or do you find that because in that setting people you're leaving people alone to explore, you want them to be able to touch and feel things and read things or or if if I'm a brand who's more focused on the D2C model, can you be that person <laughs> who takes the place of the website to explain right. that stuff? Yeah, we can. Um, yeah. But people have to utilize mm. us. Like I said, I mean, I still I'm I'm still learning because I'm new to retail and watching people has been so fascinating to mm. me. Uh, but by and large, I would say the majority of people just don't want to want to be bothered yeah again we have a magazine and they can read it in store and use it as a guide or they can read it when they get home and that's one way to satisfy both their independent shopping desire while still getting the information that they want Um, but also people shop with their phones you know that's Mm -hmm. something interesting to watch too is and and i do that same thing is that people will be going along you know quote-unquote aisles um and googling uh, hmm. the products as they go. That's interesting. Yeah. So I also think that they're price comparing, which, oh, um, okay. yeah, is another interesting thing to watch, uh, and making that decision as to whether it's something they should buy in our store or later on home at home. When you look at models that have existed for a while or companies that have been in the, you know, retail or grocery landscape for, for a long time, what are the ideas that you keep? What are the things that you think are good that you want to maintain? (laughs) Or examples of companies that you think do a good job? Of grocery stores? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I have a difficult time with grocery stores um, (laughs) as businesses. You know, I mean, they make their money off very small margins. They're like one to 3%, uh, which means that they make their money through volume. They have to sell a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. and they're counting on you having a massive cart as opposed to like our tiny baskets and coming back on a very regular basis. Uh, If they can't make money through that alone, you know, a lot of them are uh, now have very sophisticated prepared food sections with much higher margins. They also uh, are, you know, trying out new things like restaurants in store and they're very, they're very challenged. That's what creates this unfortunate shopping experience where everything is just very crowded and cluttered and it feels quite overwhelming. Mm. Um, You know, boutique grocery stores as a concept just can't really make any money because if you have a very limited supply and again, your, your basket is, um, or you have a basket versus a cart, you know, and the average cart size is like $13 or whatever, you're not going to be able to make enough money to cover your rent and your other operative costs. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but I guess when someone asks me if there's something that I look to that I'm like, mm. Ooh, yes, this is aspirationally what I want to be. Mm. Not really, which is why mm. part of the reason why I created pop-up grocer, we need a solution from a business perspective to this system. I mean, I think where my head goes is like 
three different things. One is, you know, what can we retain from like Trader Joe's or Whole Foods? Like they have thought through some of these things and Trader Joe's has a kind of a little bit more emphasis on their own brands, I guess. And so maybe it's a little bit more vertically integrated. I don't know what their margins are, but they have definitely done a lot on the training and educational side of the company. And I don't know if it's something that you've researched that I'm curious about. The other thing is just like farmer's markets, where farmer's markets feel in some ways a little bit more discovery oriented, where you're going there and maybe you have a couple of things you know you want to buy, but you're also exploring and there's sampling happening. And it's a little bit of a different experience. And then there's like Supreme or like mm-hmm. that that's outside of the grocery realm. But when I think about like companies that have done a good job, like getting people to come out to a place for a temp- temporary amount of time and like creating energy around what they're doing, um, they've been successful, obviously. So those were kind of like the things that come to mind. And I don't know if any of those resonate in any way. Yeah, I mean, we were called the supreme of grocery stores, which was like the pinnacle of my okay, career. Good. I was like, all right, I'm done. I'm dead. <laughs> all right. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, because we kind of make similarly like the drop, you know, yeah. of of the latest and greatest. It's in food and beverage. It's not as cool as sneakers. But um, but yeah, it's a much sim- is a similar model. It can be. I think it can be as cool as sneakers. Yeah. But I think the farmer's market is also an interesting model. And I don't know if you've thought about that. I, I think the difference there is like you have these individual stalls that are, it's like a mini department store, but it's very personal, right? You might develop a relationship with the person who sells blueberries or whatever, and you get to understand the story of those blueberries so much more than in a grocery store. Yeah. I think that's the heart of it, though, is that you actually are having these direct, intimate interactions with the farmers with the makers themselves. Mm. And there are a lot of models similar to that for packaged goods. There are a lot of these like artisanal maker fairs, trade shows. Mm-hmm. There's something very special about the farmer's market and right. the, the representation of the farmers. I don't, well, it's, it's not very scalable inherently. Yeah. Also that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So I mean, actually like, you know, when we're pitching participation, to these brands, a lot of them, because you know, because we're new, they don't really, uh, as a concept, they don't really know what to envision. Um, and so I think they do picture them being there personally, having a booth, mm. uh, passing out samples, having these conversations with the people who are visiting. Uh, and, and that is w- one thing that people have been successful in creating. But I, I didn't want to c- create that space i wanted it to be a sexy store gotcha (laughs) (laughs) and wait go uh, dig into that a little bit what what do you mean by a sexy store i mean our stores is designed for it it's the space i mean it feels like a grocery store enough so that it it's recognizably so we have shelves we have food products obviously we have refrigerators we have Mm. freezers but we also have a living room um we have a communal table where you can sit and chill and maybe meet up with someone. We integrate a local restaurant with fresh pastries and baked goods and coffee offering. You know, we have really like hip music. Now that I now that I called it hip, it's absolutely not. But we have really like <laughs> hip music playing. Yeah. Sometimes it's bumping. You know, we have this magazine. It's light, it's bright, it's colorful. We sell merch. We sell our t-shirts are our top selling item in the store um so we've got um we had some socks too that um i was also really proud of 
creating one um, says crunchy and one says creamy on the back. Um, <laughs> are they brown? What color are they? <laughs> they're white. They're okay. white. Um, but yeah, it's an obvious peanut butter reference. So yeah, I think, you know, those decisions are very intentional and I wanted it to feel like a place that's cool and that's worth talking about and sharing. I mean, our model is uh, reliant upon word of mouth. That's how we generate enough traffic in such a short period of time. So we do have to create a space that is remarkable. Do you think there's something generational about that? We talk a lot about, you know, millennials and, and Gen Z and that kind of stuff. What do you think from that point of view, our generation and younger generations are looking for that the um, older models from an experience standpoint are not providing? Well, I think when you look at groceries specifically, health food was novel for a, lo- for a long time. Mm. So the Whole Foods experience, for example, felt somewhat special because it has this very natural feel to it. Mm. And that was comforting because healthy products were new and not as easily accessible. Now, thank God, they are much more widely accessible, still not everywhere to the extent to which they need to be, of course. But by and large, as a country, we're demanding better food products um, and companies, even, you know, the big companies have changed their ways to deliver those. So it's sort of the foundation now. And thus, the space for a grocery store that becomes novel is one that is that doesn't feel natural that feels modern um that feels more like a clothing store or the aspiration is no longer natural so i what i'm hearing is is it's it's the expectation more so for you know younger consumers that the products are going to be natural and healthy and these kinds of things. So it opens up a different kind of in-store design that can not focus on that aspect, but make it an assumption or something right, like that. Right, that can move beyond that. Yes, that's much better articulated. Yes, I also think <laughs> there there was this, um, like she must have been 15. It was like a 14 or 15 year old that came into uh, our store in New York and she was so excited about it. She was just gushing to her mom who she was with about how it was, it was her favorite place. And can we please come (laughs) back? And I'm just standing there like, Oh my God, this is amazing. But as she was leaving, she also remarked that it was so aesthetically pleasing. Mm. And I just chuckled to myself because I was like, I don't think I even learned the word aesthetics until like four years ago when I had to for my job. Yeah. But aesthetics is something that is so ingrained and so important in younger generations having grown up with Instagram and all of these visual mediums and having a personal brand and caring about content and appearance to such a degree that the look and feel of a store, even for where you buy your food, is more important uh, or should be treated with more importance than I ever had to before. It, it, it could sound shallow in certain ways, but there's an aspect to curation that is about organizing the chaos for that, that's a service that can be provided. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about Amazon on this show and how the experience of using Amazon online has degraded so much because it's the opposite of curation. It has so many things, even for the same one product that you might be searching for that might be incredibly specific. You're returned hundreds or thousands of results and it's very overwhelming and so part of you know aesthetically pleasing is also that aspect of limiting what's there and choosing 
the right products and giving them the room to breathe. Yeah. Um, and so it's not just uh, a shallow thing. It can be something that is actually provides a lot of value. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was this piece in the Times about the growth of D to C brands, um, you know, starting with the Dollar Shave Club and Warby mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Parker. Yeah, it was a I gr- saw that piece. It was a great article. But they quoted, I'm going to totally get the numbers wrong, but they quoted the growth of, of sales for small to medium-sized companies on Amazon in the last 10 years going from $160 million to $170 billion. Wow. So there is insane appetite to buy from these companies on Amazon, yet it's not an enjoyable experience to do so. It's very challenging to discover them. So I think what our space does is introduces you to these brands and then you can go directly search for them on Amazon. I can't compete with Amazon mm. uh, in a number of ways, you know, price and convenience being the, the two biggest ones. So I'm fine with that if I, if I lose those sales um, because we're in service to these brands in introducing them where then they can be purchased on Amazon later. It might be too early to say, but is there an aspiration to have a community that sort of exists all the time of people who want to go to pop-up grocery <laughs> and and then when it's there, you know, they can go to it um, and, and it's coming back to their city or it's going in different neighborhoods or how do you think about kind of maintaining your community or your frequent shoppers, even though you're moving around all the time? Yeah, I mean, community is definitely a big aspect of what we're building within our 30 day duration. We have between 10 and 15, what we call after hours events that happen mostly in the evenings after we've closed. Uh, But in LA, we'll start doing some morning events too, like going on a hike. You know, I feel pretty strongly as somewhat extreme as this may sound, that a grocery store can be a foundational organization in your life like we used to have organized religion or Mm. (laughs) tight-knit families or neighborhoods you know villages Uh, we don't have we've we've completely lost a sense of belonging and now we're looking for it in soul cycle and wherever else well Um, i agree with this but at the same time you're not you're not there uh, permanently so you you don't have you know people need groceries every day right right? and and you're there part of the time so to me you're more like a band or something like that that comes to my town and if they're coming to my town i gotta see them yeah that's a little bit different than a place that's there always as a kind of background layer that is an institution in my community so i guess my question is like how do you keep the community going when you're not there yeah it's a good question um (laughs) i I, I don't know (laughs) i don't know Uh, it's maybe an aspiration or something how do you think you would do it or how should it be done in the long term what are your ideas around it at our at the point in which we are right now in the business, I'm thinking a lot about where we go, what we look like when we grow up and where we go from here as far as 2021, 2022. And I see two paths. You know, we can continue to pop up and combine that with e-com. So at least from a, a purchasing standpoint, there's an opportunity to engage, to continue to engage with us once we've left your city. Um, and I really like that model. And there's another option, which would be to have a brick and mortar long-term leases and just rotate our selection Mm -hmm. within. Uh, I think in that model, 
the community aspect is much stronger because we could run these events, you know, and more importantly, just have a more intimate relationship with our visitors on a regular basis, consistent basis. But I think there are ways in which we can facilitate that digitally. Well, I was really resonating with the point you were making about creating that time pressure for people Mm -hmm. um, and getting people to get out of their apartment and come Mm -hmm. to the place. And if you have that two-week window or one-month window, it kind of forces you to take action. Right. It's an interesting balance and maybe you just have to try the two and see what works better. But I don't think there's been a lot of experimentation around that. And if you keep the concept of a musical artist as a (laughs) as an analogy like there's people are still fans year round like they're not not a fan even if that artist is not in their town right and then is there a way for them to talk to each other or be engaged online or some other form format or place for them to right talk about what's going on right I don't know yeah I mean people are heartbroken when they learn that we quite literally mean we are a pop-up and we'll just, mm-hmm. we'll be gone in 20 days. And you know, they're like, Oh, I want you to be around forever. And I so immediately in that moment want me to adjust my business model and be like, okay, yes. Oh my God, you love us. That's great. I just created this thing. I had no idea anyone would even like it. And now you're begging us to stay. Leave but them I, wanting more. That's but like I kind the classic, of, right. Uh, but I kind of think thing. that I kind yeah. of think that they uh, love us because we won't be, around so um you know that's a very powerful thing yeah i I think so too yeah i mean right my my issue in in dating you know it's like the (laughs) one the one who doesn't love me is the one that the one that won't stick around is the one that i want (laughs) but i think you i think and i am not a student of the supreme school of business like i don't actually know a ton about how they've done what they've done you probably know way more than i do about it but they seem to kind of have a good cadence for a while there where it's happening enough that it feels like it's there, but it's not in a specific place. And so there might be something there that is still to explore uh, in the realm of grocery where it's just, I mean, in in a way, a farmer's market, going back to that idea, is that, but it has like the reliable thing that I know it's going to be there on Saturday. Right, yeah. Um, But it still has a time pressure because it's only there on Saturday. Totally, and for a few hours. Yeah. Yeah. You know, right now, with our resources and team as it is, we're able to do a, a store every three to four months. Hopefully we can increase that frequency and maybe we'll find there's reason to extend duration in some cities more so than others or decrease. I mean, this is the time for us to experiment mm. and really learn from each activation. But I'm really excited about going to cities. You know, so far we've been in New York where to your point, yes, we are offering a service and that we're narrowing the selection from what is very readily available to everyone in that city. Uh, but there's tons of access. Anything mm, you yeah. want, um, you can get. There are so many cities in this country I think would just be elated to have us and we could perhaps be more successful as a mm-hmm. result because we're we're so much more in demand where they just don't have that access except online. And the brands probably are not as um, active or don't exactly know how to uh, interact with those communities as well. And, and so that's a different kind of value that you can provide. Right. When you think about helping the brands kind of understand their consumers more, where does technology fit into that? Because there's there's been a lot... Um, 
in terms of what Amazon has been doing with all their automated store technologies. There's stuff that's more off the shelf, um, like beacons and things like that. Is that something that you're thinking about or like in terms of providing data back to the brands? Data in my limited experience so far is very expensive. So today it's not where I'm, I'm not investing in a very sophisticated infrastructure. Hmm. However, I do think that is a valuable offering of ours that we could continue to grow and evolve, not just for the brands, but for others who might be interested in understanding what the most popular products are in any given market, what trends we're seeing overall. People could be interested in that from a product development standpoint. So it's a TBD. TBD. Um, Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting. I I think that they're I don't know where Amazon is at in terms of um, expanding what they're doing, but understanding what people pick up off of the shelf or how much time someone spends investigating, you know, a product or making a decision seems like all kinds of, you know, in this era now where we have that all for the online world and, you know, all the brands that sell things direct to consumer are studying those patterns and trying to understand, okay, you know, how long are people spending on this page versus that page? What's the I- I version of that in the physical world? Um, and does that, is that something that you see becoming more valuable over time? Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, and maybe I'll regret saying this so strongly, <laughs> but I think the idea of Amazon creating stores is just absurd. Yeah. <laughs> I saw it's one. just not what we need from them. Like, yeah. What we need is the compliment. I know this is a very convenient theory for me as this is what we've created, but like what we need is the compliment to mm-hmm. Amazon. It's the anti-Amazon experience. Yeah. Um, we don't, you know, their stores lack personality, lack heart, especially when it comes to food. Like there's such intimate purchases. Mm. There's such an inherent amount of trust that has to be there. Something that you're going to put in your body that you're going to absorb and ingest. There's no confidence generated by that sterile Amazon store environment. Yeah, there's definitely not the same kind of heart and soul, for sure. Uh, You're never going to find that. When you interact with the the people behind all of these products, are there things that you're seeing in terms of the kinds of values that they are trying to promote in the world that... um, Either you're seeing as a trend and it's it's emerging um, among all of the different brands or that you're trying to, in your curation of the things that you sell, trying to promote in any way? We have three criteria for selecting products. The first of which is, is it new and interesting? Is there an innovative aspect? Is there an aspect of creativity? The second is about nutritional standards. And then the third is about appearance. Does it look good on shelf? Mm. So the first criterion leads us to having a lot of plant-based healthy products just because that's where the majority of innovation is happening. So I guess by default, that's something that we are promoting. Really, I would say we promote individual choice and eaters of all kinds, and we're not making a real stance apart from supporting creativity and innovation. Um, and we do put that through a lens of nutritional requirements, but we are not any one, one way specifically. Yeah. When we talked to Magic Spoon, um, now I'm forgetting the name, but they were one of the first brands to be using this new kind of sugar. Allulose. Yeah. That was re- approved recently. And I, and I, I was asking whether 
we were going to see a boom of brands that are using that. Um, are there things like that that you're seeing that come in waves or uh, things that happen? And what is new right now? What's going on? Yeah, um, definitely sugar is of high consideration for our shoppers and thus for us um, or and thus for the brands and thus for us. Uh, so yes, we're seeing a lot of innovative sweeteners like allulose, monk fruit. We're also seeing f- high fat. Uh, so ke- mm. like keto is a very po- popular diet right now. And I just watched the fat documentary myself, which I'm really late to the game. I haven't um, seen it. But was- I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's funded by like Keto Inc. You know, I I always watch those (laughs) things with, uh, with a little bit of an understanding of that, but, uh, but fascinating nonetheless. So yeah, so a lot of, uh, high healthy fat foods, uh, low in sugar are, are definitely prevalent on shelf vegetable alternatives to comfort foods. So like pasta made from cauliflower or pasta made from chickpeas, pasta made from lentils. 78% of our Mm. products, um, roughly are, uh, vegan. We're by and large vegetarian. So, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think our curation is reflective of the interests of consumers. Going back to the the global village concept, is there an aspect of local food that you think about? Um, is there anything about whether it's the ingredients or the people who are in that city that you take into consideration in terms of the products that you're promoting or selling? We localize the store in terms of the design a bit um, to be reflective of the neighborhood even that we're in within a city. And by nature of working with small brands who have such limited resources, we work probably with a majority of local brands in each city because the cost of participation is lower for them as they can hand deliver. They feel like it's more valuable if they can be there in person and be a bit more involved. But we are not specifically local product focused. In fact, I would say we're aiming to be for our products to be highly discoverable, very, very new. And local products are something that you're more than likely familiar with as they've mm. already been well distributed in your area. So our aim is actually to bring things from the outside with the hope that then they can be localized. This may be like something that is adjacent and not necessarily related to what you're doing. But in the UK, I know that they're one of the highest adopters of online grocery shopping. Um, I think 35% of, of consumers buy their groceries online over there, whereas... Which would be insane if that's true. Yeah, it is. Um, the U.S. is 3%. Yeah, and yeah. And, and the U.S. Is, is, I mean, overall, we're at, I think, around 12 to 15% of online adoption across the board, but grocery is actually one of the lowest categories of, of any. Um, and I wonder what you see there. Like, um, why is it that it, there's such a discrepancy? Why is it that in the U.S., um, even if you take the UK out of the equation, but just look at the difference between, you know, buying any other product than, than food. Why is there such a discrepancy between what people buy online and what people buy, um, in, in retail in the physical world? Yeah. I mean, grocery in the U S I think it's, I think 3% of all grocery sales are yeah. on, are online. And then it's projected to be between 10 and 15% in the next like 10 or 15 years. Whereas apparel's already at like over a third. So it's very slow growth. And 
85% of people are still visiting a their grocery store once a week. So there's obviously a desire and that's apparent in these projections um, and just in the overall growth of online global retail, but it's not the reality. I mean, there's, there's the cost aspect, like buying groceries online right now is just expensive. And I think um, that can deter a lot of people. Um, and I think there's a lot of skepticism around delivery and cold things remaining cold and frozen mm. things remaining frozen and it, your poultry being as fresh it would be as it would be if you bought it from the butcher. Um, but I think really about trust and discovery. And I think, you know, even in talking to people in the store, that's how they explain it to us, that they, they don't buy online because they just don't trust where it's coming from. Mm. And I think that trust is something that just naturally comes from human interaction with a more tangible experience. Uh, and then there's the discovery piece. I mean, especially when you're talking about buying healthy food, uh, where it's much more expensive. There's nothing that feels special or worthwhile about paying that extra money unless it's your get there's a bonus of someone explaining to you why you should because it's higher quality ingredients which cost more money um because there's this amazing founder story behind it there's more of a willingness uh when you have some a bit more of, a, of an engaging in-person experience and i think it's also just habit you know mm. people are used to going to the grocery store and making that haul and it's going to be hard to break that habit yeah, I, I, if I had to guess the differences between the U.S. And, and the U.K., there's also a big aspect of the way that the cities are organized. They're just, you know, we have much lower density here in the U.S. in terms of how sprawling cities are. And you mentioned, you know, price consciousness is so high for everyone who's buying groceries. It makes it so much harder to be able to deliver these fresh products to people in a timely manner. I think that that's got to be one a big yeah. component. And I think in the in the UK, they have a lot more of a slightly monopolistic situation with Tesco being one of the biggest grocery stores there. And so for better or worse, I think that has created a stronger distribution network there that makes it easier for everyone to have access to like their local Tesco can like deliver to their home. And right. so they can, they can do that. And I think that's what Amazon wanted to do with Whole Foods, but the footprint is still relatively minimal. I don't know how many Whole Foods locations there are, but it's definitely not enough to cover everyone and their prices are higher. So I think it's an area that a lot of people are thinking about. Um, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert in that area, but I think, you know, the Kroger is in all those different uh, you know, Albertsons type of companies are trying to figure that piece out. But yeah. that's why I was saying it's maybe adjacent to what you're doing. Maybe you're just not even, because you're in the world of discovery, you think of, you know, what you're doing, as you said at the beginning, more almost like advertising that it's just a different world altogether. Yeah. I mean, and we're showcasing specialty items, I think. Yeah ordering online ordering your groceries your staples online and that kind of yeah, stuff. Seems, yeah seems seems like a no-brainer to me if you already know what you what want. you want right but that's and i also don't know how what the distinction is there culturally between here and the uk but people don't know what to eat yeah people have no idea what to eat <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah. um so so they don't know what to buy mm. and they need help yeah. they need someone to tell them what to buy i want to talk about uh 
sourdough, <laughs> or which is was your branding, or what did you call it? Sourdough, yeah. Yeah, no, but as a, uh, is it a branding uh, or a consultancy. positioning kind of? Um, that was the company. Are you still running that also? Are you doing both at the same time? No, I'm okay. all I'm <laughs> all grocery empire now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> are there any? Um, we we touched on this a little bit, but this was you were working with a lot of companies there, and I, I would love for you to share. You know, any we have a lot of people who work in brands listening, and I think you are totally right about them often struggling about their positioning, about their approach to telling the world what they do. I wonder if we could spend as we wrap up a few minutes talking about that and and some of the lessons you learned or some of the things that you uh, felt particularly proud of or successful with in your time as a brand consultant? Yeah. Well, I never feel successful as a person. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So it's going to be a tough question for me. Likewise. Um, (laughs) But uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, I've worked exclusively with food and beverage companies. I think that's fair to say. There's probably been like one tech startup and fashion outlier, but almost exclusively working in the food and beverage space. So I think, like I said before, what by and large, what I've noticed is those brands want to talk about the integrity of their ingredients, the benefits of their product, touts, gluten-free, non-GMO, organic. Mm. And those aren't distinguishing factors anymore. They're still, again, going back to that like comms hierarchy, the prioritization of messaging, they're still important. Uh, But the concept of brand is really much more new in the food and beverage space than it is in other sectors. What? Who do you think is particularly successful at um, doing this? And and what is it in their messaging that they say? Uh, let's be practical with some examples. Uh, you take a brand like Recess, mm-hmm. um, and for anyone unfamiliar, it's a sparkling water with hemp extract. They've really positioned this world of Recess, which is about calm and you know taking time for yourself and relaxing and that's all with the understanding of culturally where we are right now and being overworked and overstressed and over anxious and so yes it is a it is a beverage but it's like a beverage as a as one solution to the sort of universal problem of the generation it's a it's a mood it's a mood. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mood. Yeah. 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 Good. You're, I'm using words like hip over here and you're like, yeah, I've got, <laughs> you're right on. With I'm it. just saying, I'm just, well, recess is a mood in yeah. itself in yeah. the name of the brand. And it's like trying to create a mood. It's saying, here's the mood that you should be in. We all, I mean, I think I'm just, I'm just bouncing no, off of what you're saying. A hundred percent. You know, recess is a specific mood. Like when I think about recess as a child. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is somewhat different than what yeah. recess has created. Because it's not the so adult much about like play. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that's just, that's, that's one example. Um, I think you could look at a brand like Sweet Green, who mm. I would say is, is more closely about product. But, you know, they started early on with this music festival that was really successful. Um, and I think their marketing overall has helped to communicate that they're about creativity and that comes through in their ingredients and in their spaces. Hmm. Um, you know, they're always a first mover as far as technology and recreating a fast casual space and what that can look like and what sort of 
services that can provide. And I think that's why they're so aspirational is that they relate while also always striving. And that's what they understand their consumer wants as well. You were working with Chobani for a little bit. What have they done? I think they, around three years ago, I guess they rebranded and that was such a successful uh, thing that they um, did with their, their new logo and design. And we've seen so many brands kind of take that concept um, and either rip it off or run with something <laughs> very similar. What do you think they did well? I mean, I was there so, I was there so many moons ago when they were just a small company so I'm not that familiar with the rebrand intimately, although I, I think it's beautiful. And what I love about Chobani is I really do feel like it was their first mover in creating brand in the food space. You know, they weren't first to market with yogurt by any means. They weren't even first to market with Greek yogurt. Mm-hmm. Um, Faya had existed for some quite some time and is a really amazing product. Yeah. But what they did was bring in the story of their founder who uh, is a Turkish immigrant and created this company with no investment and grew it very quickly. It grew faster than like Facebook and Twitter combined in the time that I was there. Uh, and it was a mass product made with quality ingredients. It proved that that could be done at a price point that large majority of America could still afford. But from a communication perspective, there was just so much heart. And, you know, we used to answer every single customer service message that came through. I created and ran the social media team. And even in times of crisis, like a recall, uh, we Mm. were highly attentive to every single Mm. inquiry that came through. Um, And I think there was a real attachment and affection for the brand that then when they wanted to just lift off and scale exponentially, like every Walmart in the country, um, they already had the foundation of that amazing brand with which to do that so that they could maintain that and uh, as they grew to be as big as they are today. Cool. Um, Well, Emily, I want to send people to the location in Los Angeles. Where is it going to be literally? So we will be at 62 Windward Ave in Venice, Mm -hmm. um, just right down by the beach from February 7th through March 1st. And we'll be open from 10 to 7 every day. That's awesome. And if people are in New York um, in the same time, will there will New York still be open during that time or no? And we don't have a standalone pop-up shop open in New York, but we are inside Neighborhood Goods with about 20 brands. And we will be there through April something. April. <laughs> if if April, you're listening to this and it's not April yeah. yet, go there. Chelsea Market. Yeah. Um, maybe longer, but definitely through April. That's that's awesome. Is there anything else you want to point people to? Uh, with the LA store, we will be launching an online marketplace. So if you want to check out our brands and not just peruse who they are, but actually buy things from them, you can do that on popupgrocer.co. No more comms. <laughs> uh, the Instagram is also really cool. We should Thank send people you. there and we'll we'll put some links in, in the show notes. But that's another way for more discovery to happen. Yeah, totally. I mean, even if you're just a curious person about innovation in the food and beverage space, uh, we're always posting about the latest and greatest. So definitely give us a follow. 
Well, thank you. And best of luck with everything. I, I want to check in in a year or two and see where things are in the, in the pop-up empire. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Ooh, one last thing before we go. I'm talking to you at home. What's your favorite brand these days? Is there something that you think is really well-made or maybe someone that you'd love for me to talk to? Send us a tweet. We are at Lumi, L-U-M-I, on Twitter. We're making this show for you, so tell us what you want to hear and we'll make it happen. Thanks. See you next time.